I was mentoring someone who was a PhD candidate in Chicago, and he decided to do his dissertation on the empirical research about the efficacy of lifelong abstinence, traditional treatment versus harm reduction. Well, the conclusions he came to based on scientific evidence was is that you have much higher compliance, you save so many more lives, and more people basically make it in the life trajectory if they're given the right tools than lifelong abstinence and teaching people that they have a disease and they lose control. Well, one of his committee members actually wrote on his paper, I still have in my files, they said, great work, but I advise you very strongly when you try to get employment, don't talk about this research because they won't hire you. Harm reduction has been a topic that's been at the center of the last number of episodes I've published, and this one is no different. Hello, I'm your host, Martin John, and you're listening to the Recover Yourself podcast, where we address topics you'll face while on a journey to recovering yourself. You may recall an interview I did with Dan Hostetler, the director at Above and Beyond here in Chicago. Well, Terry, my guest today, is applying his trade at Above and Beyond as well. We are addressing a very important point, and that is that people are not as diseased as the system would have you believe, and the system is not as healthy as it would have you believe. We have addressed this in many ways in other episodes, but it may have been a point that has flown under the radar. You see, we have to address how criminal justice, education, and of course the world of drug and alcohol treatment are not as helpful as they claim. We have to really understand that the systems we have today currently just don't follow the research. If they ever did, it's hard to say, but the research we are doing and currently have at our disposal paints a very different picture from what's being practiced out in the world. This topic, people in a disease system, is an important one to note. How many systems are we obliged to engage in that are not helping us within our lives, but simply helping the system continue to exist? There are relatively few voices overtly discussing how we can address these issues, because we have huge systemic problems ahead of us and they revolve around economics and inherited biases that are unfortunately continuing to be passed on to the next generation of caregivers, teachers, police, and others. I can't say that we present a clear roadmap to a solution, but if we can each individually take a moment to question our bias, then maybe we can make bigger strides at addressing those issues. Terry, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time. And thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, yeah. You you work with Above and Beyond, which is one of my favorite and like just dear, near and dear to me here in Chicago. Um, and it works very differently than many, many other uh, treatment centers uh, in the United States, as far as I can tell. And I know you're, you're a big part of that. Um, can you give me a primer as to, one, why Above and Beyond is different? Like, what are the reasons that you guys have decided to go in a different route? And why other locations are not doing that? Why other, why other treatment centers aren't there. What we did at Above Beyond is that we followed the research, and the research led us to what formerly would be called, this was called the harm reduction, life skill, not loss of control, REBT, which stands for Rational Motor Behavioral Therapy Approach. And then basically what we do is we integrate those approaches because, first of all, we know that when people lack purpose or meaning in life, they tend to do self-defeating things. So we have something that covers that. That's called logotherapy. That was the work of Victor Farr. Mm-hmm. We have REBT, which really mainly addresses how to help people have resiliency and have an internal locus of control to tolerate discomfort without trying to kill it off by doing addictive things. 
along with the overall resiliency and producing more consistent emotional and behavioral management, not perfection, but consistently making healthier choices and controlling one's emotions in, in a positive way. And then thirdly, where harm reduction is that we don't throw anyone out if they do come in, let's say, in an altered state, as long as they're not disruptive. Or harm reduction really believes, excuse me, harm reduction is really based on the premise you start where the person is, and with respect and dignity, you ask them what they're willing to work on. That can be reduction of harm. That can be abstinence, but we don't make the decision for them because if you try to force or coerce people into something that they really don't want to do, common sense would say it's going to, you're going to have a very high failure rate. You know, like we're talking about the system here in the United States being diseased rather than the people being diseased. Right. And so, so how, how did we... How did we end up in a place where we are continually and where 80% or more uh, treatment centers are working with an antiquated system that we know doesn't work? It's very complex, but let's break it down. Is that I think there's three or four major ways to explain it among other possibilities, but these are three major ones. The first one that sounds the most cynical and the most mean-spirited is economics and money is that, as Dr. Stan Peel wrote in Disease in America, as I wrote in my book called Self-Help and Self-Hurt years ago, is that at the very beginning, AA is funded with contributions, and they basically do what they do. But once the medical profession got into making alcoholism a so-called brain-based disease or chronic disease disorders of addictions, it now is a billion-dollar industry. And as you and I know, and our listeners know, is that once you have a great enterprise, you don't want to change anything which would take the bottom out of your profit. Mm-hmm. I like to fit this in because it's really a nice way of looking at it. When I say nice and satirical is that you go into, again, regardless of what treatment, uh, residential treatment center it is, and they charge you fees as if it's a medical service. That could be anywhere from minimally $1,000 a day up to $12,000 a day if you go to some of the more ritzy ones. Mm-hmm. And I ask the question when I debate people, I go, well, what's the medical treatment? Well, they see a psychiatrist, they normally are given something like an antidepressant or condensed tranquilizer, and they fill out the chart. But after that, everything revolves around either recovery groups or educational groups or process groups, which has nothing to do with medicine. So why are they charging such absorbent fees for non-medical set of, uh, of, of services? And the answer is because it's so lucrative. It's probably one of the largest ratios of profit that is done in medicine in America. So that's one answer. Mm-hmm. And that's one that is, it seems very obvious. It's definitely obvious to me. And I'm not really in the industry. I am, I am only, I'm, I'm only on the outskirts kind of doing my work. So uh, that's one that I'm well aware of. Um, I'd love to, you know, be, be, be educated about some more. All right. Another major ingredient, which is somewhat cultural, but also through the educational systems, public education and health education, and also through the medical institutions in America, Americans last... 20 to 30 years, love medical explanations for their own self-defeating behavior. So so as Charles Charles Sykes, and I don't agree with everything he said, but he wrote a book almost 35 years ago called Nation of Victims, The Decay of the American Character, where we often think of Americans as rugged individuals who have resiliency, who will fight the good fight and to, again, live a better life. However, the idea that if you eat too much, or you don't exercise, or you have a weight management problem, or if it's substances, or if it's compulsive gambling, that somehow medicine, based on the 1990s decade of the brain research, will find some brain-based reason why you make stupid choices. Americans have embraced that idea for two reasons. One is also no responsibility. 
okay, can become an excuse, and it has. Another aspect would be is people want something for nothing. So basically, if someone says to you, oh, I have a medicine that will not just help you eat less, but you'll eat healthy and exercise more, well, that's sold on a monthly basis for millions of dollars in America. Those kind of self-help books or those kinds of ingredients. Because people are always looking for magic when they have a difficulty or they want to live a healthier life. And unfortunately, it's been promulgated that what we call addictive behavior, not addictions, but addictive behavior. It's a chronic brain-based disorder. So you want to use a medical intervention. However, we know, and I'm not against what are called medical assistant interventions like Suboxone or Naltroxone, but in my lifetime, I will guarantee you, and in your lifetime, is there will never come up with a medical intervention to stop people from doing stupid things or destructive things or self-defeating things. So that's another explanation, is that Americans like medical explanations, and technically it's called radical neurobiological reductionism. We'll reduce it down to the brain. Somehow we'll be able to fix the brain either with psychosurgery or some type of pharmaceutical intervention, and that'll be good. And last but not least, which it might not seem so, is that if you know the history of the, of the what I call the modern disease model, particularly of alcoholism and loss of control, it goes back to Benjamin Rush, who was considered the founding father of medicine during revolutionary times, who thought alcoholism was a disease, but he also thought being black was a disease, and he also thought that if you didn't fight for the revolution, you had a disease. He thought everything was a disease. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because we were populated by Puritans. And this culture still, even if it doesn't seem, is devoutly religious in many ways. And anything that is pleasurable that isn't associated with the religious ideology is considered bad. That's where the anti-saloon movement came from, prohibition came from. And to this day, basically, is that instead of saying people are devils for using drugs, what we prefer to say is that, no, they're not devils. They're diseased people who can't control themselves. So that religious viewpoint also uh, becomes part of the mix. And this isn't the only place where we are not following the research. We're not following the research in education. We're not following the, we're not following the research in criminal justice. We're not following. We're, we have a society that is continually doing research and not following it. And mm-hmm. it is a very difficult thing because like being in a you know 1930s the era like movie about um a, an asylum you just keep getting called crazy you keep getting called diseased we have so many different diagnoses and receiving a diagnosis can be a very empowering thing for somebody because now they know and they have something to you know like look at and so I'm, I'm i'm grateful for that but it's also a difficult thing to have so many diagnoses out there where it's just like no everybody's normal everybody's healthy let's just start here where where we can treat you at least with respect from where you are without getting real long-winded the diagnostical statistical manual that's used in psychiatry which are the diagnostic categories to be quite frank, I hope I can use the word horseshit. It's not based in science. Thank you. And, and do remember, by the way, again, is that at one time, you know, homosexual was considered a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And in European psychiatry, they do not have a, a category called social anxiety disorder. They just call it shyness, and they help people again deal with their introversion or their shyness in a very different way. And another way of thinking about that, where does normal shyness end and a social anxiety disorder begin? So if you blur that and then convince people, that you have some type of disease or disorder that you can't control, but pharmaceuticals can be used, well, that's profit. And also the profession of therapy or counseling, regardless of what profession provides, social worker, 
clinical psychologists or paraprofessionals, that's a market. You want to market illnesses and diseases because then people will come for the workshops or the therapy or for the pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. Now, that does not dismiss that people have problems in life. And the world's a hard place. And I am very, I'm very open. And, I, and like I said, there is a lot of power in getting a diagnosis to understand, like, oh, this is where, this, this is the range of the, of, of the uh, spectrum that I am on. You also don't feel alone or isolated because you know, other people are struggling with what you're struggling with. Because one of the most common irrational beliefs in a person's belief system, I'm the only one that has this mm-hmm. problem. I'm right. so different, no one could understand me. So a sense of community it doesn't have to be group therapy. It could just be, right. again, a network where people say, no, we struggle again in a very similar way that you do, even though we're different people, it can be very beneficial because you don't feel isolated alone and you don't tend to embarrass or shame yourself over what you're struggling with. Treatment centers and, like, the industry of treatment, it's a behemoth. Like you said, billion-dollar industry. Um, how How feasible is it to for it to start moving in the direction of harm reduction health, like following the, the research, like... Well, I think there's, there would be three major change agents of process of positive change. One of them mm-hmm. would be to try to get the scientific researchers to get into the schools where they train social workers or people who work with addictive behavior to fully inform them about the current research so that they're still at a point where they're learning to be open-minded enough versus continue to teach the propaganda. Every time I do a professional workshop, and I do many of them, the first thing I ask would be is that because most of them are either postgraduate students or graduate students and they want to learn how to do rational motor behavioral therapy, that's what the training workshop is on, I ask them to bring in their books. and Because I read all the books, I read the textbooks, and instead of saying, it's a speculation, it might be a contributing factor, the books, I don't care if it's University of Chicago, Northwestern, again, Loyola, my alma mater. But the textbooks they use say that it's a scientific conclusion that there's hardcore genetic inheritance for, again, alcoholism and addictive behaviors. It's epigenetic. Basically, we're trying, we're trying to nail it down, which means, again, the environment plus the genes. And they also talk about it is a brain-based disorder. And this is what's in their textbooks. So one of the first things would be is to try to basically get different kinds of information to those textbooks or get the research that's being conducted now in America and throughout the whole world into those graduate programs. So that would be one. So the next generation of people who are going to work with people with addictive behaviors hopefully are, hopefully are informed correctly or in a valid scientific way. That's one. Mm-hmm. Another one would be is, I don't know how we would do it, to tell you the truth, but we would try to basically public TV workshops, what you and I are doing, is to keep not hitting people over the head with any message that you're an idiot if you believe the disease model, but in a respectful, decent way to have dialogues or information, public workshops, literature, to basically inform people there is an alternative viewpoint based on facts and science, and the rest of the world has gone that way because it works much more powerfully in a positive way for a much greater percentage of people who struggle with these difficulties, be it emotional or behavioral, and try to educate the public that way. See, community-based organizations, excuse me, community-based treatment where you integrate yourself in the community and you do harm reduction, life skill training, purpose, cognitive behavioral RPT therapy are unbelievable less expensive than using medical interventions that don't work. Absolutely. One of my one of the posts that I made not long ago, um, and I continue to put it up, is, 
You know, we can save a lot of money if we just treat people with respect. You got That's it. it. You, you got it. That's it. And it's super simple. This, we don't, we never, like, like, you know, you keep saying, like, following the research. I don't know any of the research. And everything you're talking about and everything I'm talking about are in line because it's just about treating people with respect. And I know that because the only reason that I'm clean and sober is because I had to treat myself with respect. And, and that was because I saw one person treat me with respect. Right. And if I, if I phrase it this way, another riff going in another direction is that if you look at, and there is research on what happens in a, in a classroom, regardless if it's grammar school, middle school, or high school, when they're successful, again, learning, if you look at patient-doctor relationships called bedside matter, and if you look at the research on psychotherapy, now I'm a hardcore rational motor behavioral practitioner because I think mm-hmm. it's applicable to so many things that people struggle with. But what I say always to the interns, 50% of what you're doing in this building is a quality of your relationship with our clients. That's where it begins. Now, that's not where it ends, but if you don't treat people with unconditional acceptance and encouragement and respect and dignity, nothing is going to happen. And that is part of the therapeutic process, plus other ingredients. But if you look, and now we get into the horror stories. That, did you ever? Did you know anything about what was called Daytop? Again, community. Well, these were organizations. Their premise was that addicts are liars who are in denial. And the first thing you have to do is called the Synanon Games. You sit them in the middle of, again, a room. And people bombard them, not physically at first, but verbally to tear them down and ridicule them and make them feel that they're a piece of shit. That gentleman's still in jail because Dykert, who basically was the leader and got money from the federal government, by the way, it was a truly a therapeutic cult. When a reporter started to report about what the shenanigans were in the group, he basically put a rattlesnake into his mailbox. The guy survived, but Dykert went to jail for attempted murder. So I did hear about this. I, 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 I don't know names. I don't know. This I don't, was I don't, in the 60s and 70s. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So the point of that story basically would be is that any type of therapy, be it group or one-to-one or any type of self-help that's coercive, yeah, we are the experts, you're the idiots, you have to buy a premises, otherwise you're in denial, which proves that you have a disease, is quite demeaning to people, and people stiffen their back and don't want to to have anything to do with it. Or they feel intimidated. I'll throw that one in. The research shows that most people attend 12-step-based programs where they're told they have a disease. The great majority don't believe it. But to say that out loud in the group, they'd be verbally put down and saying, see, that's part of your denial. All addicts think, again, that they can do this or that. If you don't agree with our premise, it proves that you have the disease because the hallmark of the disease is denial. So that's how coercive it is or, again, how the meaning it is. So as you and I have total agreement, basically, one of the most important things about a sense of community or a one-to-one relationship is respect, acceptance, and encouragement. And a lot of it is lacked in, again, the professional delivery of services for addictive behaviors in America. So when I look at this, one of the big, one of the big sort of glaring, obvious sort of things that pop out is people that don't enter this world of mm-hmm. addiction treatment, um, they are still seeing the they they are seeing these effects around them as well, like like all of the the fo- the, the not following the, uh, the 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 diseased system is around us everywhere. The, mm-hmm. the system that is so locked up in the idea that we have an argument for everything that you're going to say, and you as an individual don't have freedom to 
really explore yourself because we we want you to look and act and be a certain way and that and that and that's in our politics and it's in our education and it's in it's in everything and whether you know in pop culture we see the message of go out and be yourself but so often it is go out and be yourself within limits that we're okay with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and right. so yeah, there's still on. a conformity there. So this idea of a rugged individual who's trying to find him or herself, but in the confines of what we define, makes you a rugged individual. So it's almost a paradox. Right. And a lot of things in American culture are paradox. We're supposedly devoutly religious, and we are. I'll take back what we are. But at the same time, we're secular, and we're loose as hell, and you know, we do the dance of the devil. But again, would be. And so that, as you have seen in our lifetime, in the last 10 years, the tribalism, you know, when there used to basically be consensus where Democrats and Republicans could talk to each other civilly and try to work on something that was a compromise. Well, those days, unfortunately, very concerningly, seem to be over because they're tribes, meaning they're at war with each other. Right. right. But to take it back to what we're talking about, because it's... Because, and really, yeah. we are talking about it all. Like, it's yeah. not, it's like, like to, to compartmentalize what we're talking about into just treatment is uh, doing a very big disservice, I think. But but yes, bringing it back home so that we can have a touchstone. Please do. Right. And so so for someone that uh, we both have very affectionate feelings for, which is Dan Hofstetter, the director of Above Beyond, our philosophy is that we don't argue with anybody. And my version of that would be is if I have people in my SMART group, which is self-management recovery training, which is based mm-hmm. on harm reduction and RDBT, et cetera, not loss of control. We think you can control manage anything in your life if you're willing to do the work. If someone basically says, well, I think it's a disease, what we have is that intelligent dialogue is help me understand why labeling yourself as an out-of-control, helpless person with a brain-based disease, how does it help you make better choices? And if it does, pragmatically, if that any, then go for it, all right? Go for it. And that's why at the very same time at Above and Beyond, it's called a vestibule, which means an entry, is that we most people know about 12 steps, 12 traditions. They know about the different 12-step bases. Groups, AA, NA, CA, Cocaine Anonymous, okay, whatever it might be. But many other Americans don't know about things like Drink Smart and Smart and Women for Sobriety, etc. So we actually have a video that when the client comes in, they sit down and they watch it, the different approaches to get to where you want to go in your life to live a healthy, balanced lifestyle. And we don't pick the treatment for them. They pick what makes the most sense to them. And there's actually instruments we can use to help people help people make a decision about what treatment would probably be better for them with flexibility. We also have people in the building who come and go between, again, AA and SMART. They take the best of what makes the most sense to them, and they integrate it in their own way, and it works very, very well for them. Right. But how many people I've had way before I got to Above and Beyond, because my career is almost 45 years in length now, how many people basically said to me in the last five or six years at Above and Beyond, when I sat in those other groups, not at Above and Beyond, but, again, it was inpatient, residential, or outpatient, and they went over again and again and again the steps. It never appealed nor made sense to me. And I never really bought the disease model. But I was too scared to tell the truth because I know that I would be slammed for basically speaking up for myself. And then they'll often say to me, isn't the essence of any educational, healthy, therapeutic process being honest? And I go, yep. Well, how could I be honest in the context that if I told the truth, I'd be criticized or they actually would basically say that I'm not working on what they would call recovery or healthy balance lifestyle. Um, well, that 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 really describes so clearly the 
how sick and diseased the system is, where it is claiming that it is open to people who are in this situation, and yet, knowingly, they have to... It, maybe they're not aware of how much they are pressuring the individuals to go a certain route. But, you know, systems move much slower than individuals. So yes. let's look at, like, the counselors and the clinicians in here. They are often coming with a, with a bias because many of them are also coming from, a, a, from having an addiction background themselves. And so... How does that how does that continue to the legacy of bad bad ideas? <laughs> well, you asked it as a question, but you kind of gave the explanation would be is that without being demeaning or disrespectful, people who got their life together and want to give back what they got out of a program, or they want to be benevolent and help other people who are struggling with what they struggle with. But part of that territory can be is that if you've had a conversion to an ideology that becomes dogmatic and rigid. So this is the only pathway for salvation, i.e. to turn your life around. Everything else is a death highway. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard that uttered many, many times in 12-step programs. And, yes, I happen to think that a lot of people basically, they're benevolent in their hearts and in their core, core values. They want to help people help themselves. But they have been codified, fossilized in an ideology that has no tolerance or room for other alternatives or possibilities to help other people who aren't you, who look at the world differently and need a different set of tools. Right. So yeah. that's part of the industry also. And that can continue kicking the can down the road of a system that we know doesn't work. We right. know, we, 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 we have the evidence that the research shows that it doesn't work, and yet we continue filling the, the void of the, the system with itself. And, right. um, and, and, and here we are 50 years down the line after like some of the first, um, some of the first, uh, harm reduction, 60 years down the line, some of the first harm reduction, uh, effect, uh, like programs in Liverpool. And, and here we are just ignoring them. You know, I've talked with many people who work with, uh, treatment centers, uh, yourself included, but many places that have beds, you know, they say, well, we don't put people out to the street. But they do that all the time. They and we know that the they time. do it all the time. And they have plenty of ways to do that without it looking looking on paper bad. And I know great counselors who have had to go out on their own and have a private practice only because every single treatment center that they work in is working against the people that are going there. I was mentoring someone who was a Ph.D. candidate in Chicago. And he decided to do his dissertation on the empirical research about the efficacy of lifelong abstinence, traditional treatment, versus harm reduction. Well, the conclusions he came to based on scientific evidence was is that you have much higher compliance, you save so many more lives, and more people basically make it in a life trajectory if they're basically given the right tools than lifelong abstinence and teaching people that they have a disease and they lose control. Well, one of his committee members actually wrote on his paper, I still have it in my files, they said, I'll use a different name. John, great work, but I advise you very strongly when you try to get employment, don't talk about this research because they won't hire you. That's how coercive it was at that particular point. So if you talked the truth and told the science, you actually could be ostracized or um, completely, they would, they would not hire you. And if you worked in a clinic, they would really go after you and tell you to shut up and or you're harming our clients or you can't work here. 
And that goes back into this whole concept of like, we are, you know, the system is addicted to itself. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. as I, as I continue to look at this, it's, and, and when we can, when we can break from the standardized idea of what addiction is and trying to fit it into a category that the DSM gives us, it's, it's much easier to just be like, Hey, is this something that you don't want to be doing anymore? Because really as a system, as a, as, as, as a society here in the United States, if we as individuals were to say, hey, do you want to continue making it worse? We would say unequivocally, no, of course not. We don't want to selectively make it worse. Um, but that's what we do, and that's what we're continuing to do. And I'm really, we have a diseased system, and, and we, we know the research is there, and, and it's been there for decades that it's not a disease. We know that. Um, and uh, And, you know, like... I know people who are still determined to believe it's a disease and I let them believe that and that's fine. And I have no, I have no argument with them. I don't like they, right. they hold on to it and it worked for them and they're, and they're, you know, 30 years clean or whatever. And I'm like, right. good on you. I ain't got no problem with that. But when the system wants everybody to fall in line on something that they know doesn't work across the board, that they know is, is putting people in a corner Something needs to be said. And that's why I wanted to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Terry. Oh, well, it was a pleasure. And I thank you for inviting me on. And I hope that whoever listens to this would get them to start to ponder and think about you know, what we can do as a culture and society to help each other live healthier lives by trying to follow the research and common sense about what helps people help themselves the best and most effectively. So I thank you for having me on. Terry has a lot of information and has been in this industry for a very long time. I hope you were able to glean some insights on the broad scope of the tasks we have in front of us. As we have opened businesses and schools back up after the pandemic, we see so many people clamoring to return to the systems we knew had only benefited a small percentage of people. I saw the pandemic as an opportunity to change to something healthier, but the attachment to the old antiquated model seemed to be too strong. People are dying while they're still alive, and the systems we surround ourselves with are contributing to that. Many people in our communities support the old models of doing things, and they can be very loud while doing it, because they have historically been supported by the same systems they're supporting. I mean, I get it. It's not easy to give up power. It is also not easy to stand up against that power. And in the end, we're all going to have to feel a little uncomfortable, so it might be a good idea to get used to that now. A new system is not going to be easy to build, but that still has to happen. You can find links to everything Terry is doing in the description of this episode. Please rate and review this podcast and leave comments for this episode to help me create better content. Support this show at anchor.fm or support me and my work at Patreon, where you'll get access to unedited content as well as writings and access to supporter group portrait sessions with me. I host workshops regularly, which are both open to the public and a source of continuing education units for professionals. I also take a limited number of one-on-one clients every month, so contact me when you're ready to work together through martinjohn.com. I also accept financial support through Venmo at martinjohn underscore Garcia, so if you benefit from listening to this content, please consider supporting my efforts. Thank you for listening to the Recover Yourself podcast, and until next time, keep recovering yourself.